0: This evening's reading is from Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27, which can be found on page 1053 of the Church Bibles. It should be underneath your seats. That's Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king, and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, "'Sir, your mina has earned 10 more.' "'Well done, my good servant,' his master replied, "'because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. "'Take charge of 10 cities.' The second came and said, "'Sir, your mina has earned five more.' His master answered, "'You take charge of five cities.' Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit?" so that when I come back, I could have collected it with interest. Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did did not want me to be a king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is the word of the Lord.
1: And uh, let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for uh, your word. Thank you that we can be confident and sure that you will speak to us this evening. And so we pray now that in this heat you would give us ears to hear and hearts that long to obey uh, all that you want to teach us this evening. Amen. Amen. First of all, thank you to all of you who've prayed for the Connect Weekend Away. We had a wonderful time. Uh, It was a little warm, but it was brilliant. So thank you so much. Now, I wonder, if someone gave you £8,000 to invest, how would you spend it? Uh, I've always been a bit of a budding businessman. I've had several business plans. Uh, My first started when I was at junior school, and I saw a patch of uh, undeveloped land next to the school playground. So I went home, and I designed a six-a-side pitch. So I thought that would be a really good investment for that piece of land. Uh, Then, as a a teenager, I thought, do you know what? Actually, there's money to be made in doing kids' discos. So I was a DJ for a little while, traveling the community halls of Farnborough, (laughs) doing children's parties. And uh, if my vicar career ever fails, I've got a few ideas up here that I might fall back on. But what would you do? 8,000 pounds to invest. How would you invest that money to ensure that you got a good return? The parable of the ten minors or ten meaners is all about getting a good return with what we've been given. And in this parable we're going to see that Christians have a responsibility to invest wisely, to be good stewards of what? They have been given. And so, as we go through the parable this evening, I want you to have this question in your minds. What will I do with what I've been given? What will I do with what I've been given? But before we launch into the parable, just look at verse 11, because in verse 11 we will see why Jesus tells this parable in the first place. Verse 11, Jesus says this, While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Over the last few weeks as we've been going through Luke's Gospel, we've seen the importance of Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem. Expectations are rising, and the closer they get to Jerusalem, the, the bigger the expectations are. And so much so that by this point, Jesus' followers are wandering, expecting, hoping that in Jerusalem, Jesus might establish the kingdom he's been talking about on earth. But that's not what Jesus is going to do. You see, the kingdom of God is coming, but not yet. And Jesus is, in one sense, going to be made king through the cross and resurrection but his rule will not be fully established yet. And so Jesus tells this parable because he wants to teach his followers about how they are to live whilst they wait, whilst they wait for the coming of God's kingdom to be fully established. So follow the story with me. He tells this parable about a man of noble birth who has to travel to a far-off country in order to be made king, to be crowned king. And once he's been crowned, he will come back. He will take up his throne and rule over the lands. And as he departs, Jesus introduces us to two types of people, servants or subjects. So first Jesus, the, the noble man, gathers these ten servants to him and he gives them each one mina, which would be roughly equivalent to about four months' worth of the average person's salary. So if your salary is 25k, it's about 8,000 pounds. They're the servants. But there's another group of people in the parable, and they're the subjects. Verse 14. The subjects hate the noble. They do not want him to be made king. They do not want to submit to his rule. Now, uh, given Jesus has already explained the reason for telling the parable, it's fairly obvious that the king in the parable represents Jesus. He's going away, but one day he will return to establish his kingdom. And in the meantime, he gives his servants responsibility. And when he returns, he will say, what have you done with what I gave you? Eventually, the noble returns. He's now been made king, and he comes to establish his rule over the land. And so he gathers the servants back to him to get a financial report of how they've spent the money. And we, we only hear about three. In verse 16, the first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in, very small, in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. What do we learn from these first two servants? Well, I think we learn this. You've got a handout, by the way. These points are on the, the back of your service sheets. We learn that those who are faithful to Christ will be generously rewarded. Followers of Christ who work hard with what they've been given, work hard to serve their king, will be rewarded for their work. I think we uh, tend to think about future heavenly rewards as, um, in, in human terms, in earthly terms. We can think of these as status, as wealth, you know, a big palace. Or reputation or accolades. But notice that that's not what the reward is in this parable. For their faithful service to Christ, the servants are given cities to take charge of. Future heavenly rewards are about service, not status. Uh, As I read one commentator saying this, I think, very helpful little line about these future rewards. He says this, The reward of duty done is a duty to be done. The reward of duty done... Is a duty to be done. Um, I've got a friend uh, at Wycliffe who's studying to be a vicar, and before Wycliffe, he uh, worked in London and he worked in the Life Guards and the Household Cavalry. And so his job, uh, you know, on the um, Trooping of the Colour and all those sort of events you see on the telly, he was one of the guys on the horses, uh, one of the guys who gets to escort royalty through the streets of London. And I just found his work fascinating, and I I asked him about what it was like. And his reply was, just work, hard work. And he talked me through the hours of preparation that goes into making sure the uniform is right and the horses are presented. Just a pair of boots can take 15 to 20 hours of work to get them to the level and standard of required and as I talked to him about just the labour involved in that, I, my question was, why did you choose to do that? Why not serve in other areas of the army which are much less demanding? And his response was this. He said, when I am riding and escorting the Queen or other members of the royal family, it feels like such a privilege that all that hard work is worth it. You see, the reward of duty is a duty to be done. That's my friend Mike's experience. It was such a privilege for him to serve his monarch that he was willing to do the work now in order to get there. The rewards for Mike's labours weren't a, a long holiday on the beach, but were more service, service of his queen. See, what a privilege it is to be counted worthy of serving God, serving Christ the King in eternity. But that joy, that future joy in serving, is the response, is a reward of faithful service to God now. You might say, well, hang on a minute, doesn't all this talk of rewards, doesn't that sort of fly in the face of grace? I thought it was about undeserving. We don't deserve anything. Well, I don't think grace here is the opposite to rewards. notice in this parable that the servants aren't entitled to a reward. Then the king just graciously gives it. It's an act of grace. Even the rewards to God's people are an act of grace. It's his his, his gift to us. As I've uh, been reflecting on this passage this week, I think it is a great encouragement to those of us who day by day, week by week, try to faithfully serve Jesus as our King. God sees what you do and he will reward your labours the sacrifices you make, the hours you give, the love and care that you show others that no one else sees. When you do those things in service of your king, God sees. And one day you will receive your rewards. And not of a bigger house or a better status or accolades, but of the opportunity to serve your king. So keep going. Keep going. He will not be gone long. Those who are faithful to Christ will be generously rewarded. However, the outcome for the subjects who hated the king is not as positive, is it? Verse 27, look at what happens. See, those who reject Christ will face death. This verse is a very short and sharp to the point reminder of what will happen to those who refuse to recognise Christ as their king. And remember, being an enemy of God doesn't necessarily look like outright anger or venom. It can look very pleasant and nice, even sympathetic towards Jesus. But underneath that exterior is a refusal to recognise Jesus as King. I am, um, not this last week, but the week before, I had the privilege of going up to Sheffield and spending the week working alongside a chaplain at a hospice. Uh, it was a hugely eye-opening experience. And um, uh, I met one guy, let's, let's call him um, George. He was uh, a lovely Yorkshire man, proper Yorkshire through and through. And um, he's, he'd come in because his wife was in the, <coughs> the latter stages of motor neurone disease. And she was very, very poorly. It, it was very, very sad to see. She was living under a death sentence, and it wasn't far away. And I got chatting to George, and um, to make it easy, I, I just told him I was a trainee vicar. And uh, as we chatted, he said he had a real respect for religious people. He'd say phrases like, you know, each to their own. Live and let live. Uh, but he said, it's not for me. I'm not a religious guy. It turns out, as we chatted more, that he'd been baptised as a baby and then he'd been confirmed. So he'd been about religious things and he wasn't hostile at all. And he was just a lovely, lovely man. And as I've been reflecting on this passage and reflecting on that encounter, I've been struck that this week, week, as lovely as George is, he is under the death sentence just as much as his wife. Because he's lovely and kind, but he is living as an enemy to God. He refuses to recognise Jesus as King. And so he lives facing death without hope. Now yes, of course, we want to be sensitive, don't we, in how we share the hope of Jesus. We don't want to ram the gospel down people's throats. But I wonder if we've lost a sense of urgency, of people's need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ when a death sentence hangs over us. Perhaps you're not a Christian yet, perhaps at the moment you live under that death sentence. Please come, find out more about Jesus and his offer of life. Now then, the observant among you will have realised I've missed out a servant. I've missed out the third servant, haven't I? And I've missed it out because I think actually most of the passage is about that third servant. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time uh, on him. Now what's the third servant done? Well, he's, he's basically done the first century equivalent of hiding the money under the mattress, hasn't he? And when the king returns, he, he, he gamely tries to justify his actions. Verse 24, 21, he says, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Now, as excuses go, that doesn't really make sense, does it? If you've got a boss at work or a teacher at school who is harsh, what do you do? Well, you work harder. You do everything you can to ensure that you stay on the right side of your boss or the right side of the teacher. But the servant doesn't bother doing that. And I think, Jesus recognises that when he says in verse 22, he says, look, if that's what you think I'm like, if you think I'm harsh and unfair, why didn't you invest the money in a savings account? There's no risk to that. It's it's win-win. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. The king isn't really like the third servant describes, is he? You see, if you've had different bosses, you'll know that the best bosses to work for are the ones who trust you enough to give you responsibility. <coughs> Excuse me. <Ooh. laughs> the best bosses are the ones that give you responsibility, aren't they? <coughs> uh, and then reward you for a job well done. And I think, actually, the king comes across in this parable as a very generous and fair king. Work hard, get rewarded. So the servant, then, is either misguided in what he thinks the king is like, or he's lying, he's just lying, to try and justify his laziness and refusal to serve. And so look what Jesus says to the servants. Then he said to the... Sorry, the... Um, the noble, the king. Then he said to those standing by, take his minor away from him and give it to the one who has ten minors. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. I think the sobering point of this parable is all about the third servant, actually, and it's this those who refuse to serve Christ will be left with nothing. Of course, the key question here is, what is nothing? See, is the third servant still a servant, but he's now without a reward, but he's still just about a servant? (coughs) Or is he left with nothing in the sense that he is now treated like a subject, as one who hates the king? Now, as I've thought about it this week, I think you can argue it both ways. So, supporting the case for him to still be a servant is the fact that he's not directly put in the group of subjects in verse 27. There's a but at the beginning of verse 27. But interestingly, if you look at a very similar parable in Matthew 25, the the third servant who does nothing with what he was given is thrown into the darkness where there is weeping, a gnashing of teeth. It's hell. So is this third servant still a servant, just without a reward, or is he a subject? Will he face death? Maybe it's left vague for a reason. Maybe it's supposed to make us think, to ponder, well, actually, where do I stand before the king? But I wonder whether the key verse is verse 26. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away." So the question is, how can you have nothing and still lose something? That strike you as slightly odd? Perhaps the answer is this: that you can look like you have something. You can look like you have something when actually you don't. And eventually what you think you have will also be taken away. The servant, he, well he looks like a servant, he looks like he belongs to the community of God's people. The community of those who serve the king. But actually when it truly came, when it came to the challenge of actually stepping up to the plate and serving the king, well his true colours came out. He didn't want to do it. And the truth is, the sad truth is, that in God's church across this land and the world, there are many, many who look like they belong in the community of God's people, look like they serve Christ as king, yet actually when the rubber hits the road and Christ asks them to serve, their true colors are revealed. Perhaps people like this turn up to church services on a Sunday. Perhaps they come to Unite or Connect or a home group. They tick the attendance box. But the moment they're asked to count the costs of serving Christ, to follow Christ's commands when it's difficult, well, they opt out. Because they're only willing to serve Christ on their terms, not his. His. See, do people like that hit that hit that's Christ's words here are a sobering warning. But for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. It's not enough to know about Jesus. It's not enough to look like we belong to the community of God's people. Following Christ is about giving your allegiance to him as king. And there's a question mark if we're not whether to do, willing to do that, whether we actually belong, whether we are actually a servant at all. So tonight, if you have little desire to serve Christ outside of coming to church on a Sunday, then I think Jesus in this parable encourages us to ask hard questions. Hard questions about whether we actually know the king and I think that's important because as I draw to a close I think it's worth noting that you won't serve Christ if you have the wrong view of him see that was the problem wasn't it the third servant was unwilling to serve the king because he perhaps misunderstood if he wasn't lying let's let's assume the best he misunderstood the nature of his king The third servant thinks the king is harsh and unfair or at least that's the reason he gives for his lack of service. If you think that Jesus is a harsh demanding king who asks too much of you then you won't want to serve him. If you think Jesus is a harsh and hard king who, despite your best efforts, will come down and you say, It's not good enough, try harder, then you won't want to serve him. But that's not the King Jesus of the Bible. Because if you know the Jesus of the Bible, if you know the Jesus of Luke's Gospel, you know that Jesus is a King who loves you and generously wants to give you life in all its fullness. It's not harsh and unfair. If you know the Jesus of Luke's Gospel, you know a king who delights at his followers' tentative steps, failing steps, stumbling steps, to try and serve their king, despite the failings. And if you know Jesus, the king, you know that he is not a king who came to be served, but a king who came to serve. See, could it be, the same that if we don't want to serve Jesus sometimes, it could be that we have the wrong idea of what King Jesus is like. For Jesus is a generous king who wants to generously reward those who are faithful to him. Now that is the type of master that I want to serve. A king who is for me. A king of that type is the sort of king I want to do the hard work now for. To do my duty. To love my God. To serve my king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words this evening. And as we reflect, maybe we see uh, bits of all three servants in us. And so we pray that we would hear the encouragement of the first two and the challenge to the third. Amen.